Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. When it comes to curbing alcohol-related harm, such as impaired driving, binge drinking, and gender-based violence, a multinational drink and brewing company may not be the most obvious leader and facilitator. My guests today, however, are doing just that on behalf of Anheuser-Busch InBev SANB, commonly known as AB InBev. My two guests today are John Blood and Bill Novelli. John is Chief Legal and Corporate Affairs Officer and Company Secretary at AB InBev. Formed following the acquisition of American brewer Anheuser-Busch by Belgian-Brazilian brewer InBev in 2016, the company has approximately 630 beer brands in 150 countries. Bill Novelli founded and oversees the Business for Impact program at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business, which partnered with AB InBev this year to facilitate a case study analysis of InBev's smart drinking goals, an initiative that aims to reduce the harmful use of alcohol by at least 10% in six cities by the end of 2020. And since we're recording this in 2021, we'll get an update on those goals. John and Bill, welcome to Brand on Purpose. It's great to be here, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Good to be here. So, Bill, I'm going to start with you. We talked about this a little bit off air. I'm a little bit of a fanboy since uh, you and I are in the same business, or at least you started the famous PR agency, which still has your name today, Porter Novelli hence the Novelli part. I always like to see people who have strategic communications and reputation backgrounds give back and use those skills, which are so valuable, especially today, to help companies do well by doing good. And that's exactly what you're doing. If you can just start with how you're introduced to AB InBev. I know you're a professor now. And then after you sold your agency, you worked in the nonprofit world. You were CEO of AARP. But you also had a couple of other nonprofit roles as well. I think you started Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, and you also worked at CARE as Executive VP and Chief Operating Officer. So you kind of epitomize the learn, earn, return trajectory of a career that I and so many others would like to follow in our lives. So it's just so great to have you on the show. And John, I'm sure I'll find nice things to say about you as well. But Bill, talk a little bit about how you met John, how you got involved with AB InBev, and why. Thanks, Aaron. I've had a long career. Half of it has been in the corporate world and half in what I call public service. When I went to Georgetown and started this center there, Business for Impact, it wasn't long before we began doing some work with AB InBev. They had embarked on this Smart Drinking Goals program. We were doing some work with them in South Africa and in other places. We had a nice conference at Georgetown After a while, they asked us to take a look, to do like a case study of how AB InBev was doing with their smart drinking program. So they'd been at it for about five years. And the question was, how have we been doing and where do you think we should go from here? That was the relationship and it's a very strong one. And that was when? About five years ago that we started with AB InBev. That's a very long commitment, John. It's great to hear that because so often I'm like super skeptical because so often brands will come to me and they're like, how do we uh, either take credit for something that we should be taking credit for? or How do we fundamentally change our business and be better corporate citizens, global citizens? And it sounds like AB InBev is making a long term, sustainable, real business driven commitment to being better. It really is, Aaron, in the sense that one of the things that drew us to Bill and to Georgetown in particular is if you think about what Bill has built there, right, this idea of business for impact. What struck me even before I met Bill was this idea of for impact. 
And that's what it was all about when we had our smart drinking goals. What impact could we make? But before we got to the impact, we had to step back. And I would say the light bulb really went off when we realized that we, like many beer companies, alcohol companies, had been running smart drinking programs and we were going with what we thought was right. So, oh, we think this program will work for the following reasons. And then we did it. And then we did more of it. And then we did more and more of it. But what we never did was we never stepped back and said, what's the impact? What works? And you only get there if you start with the basic question of how do you measure it? How do you know? And the only way you get there is you find the best people around the world who are going to tell it to you straight. And that's what I love about working with Bill and Georgetown is they just tell it to us straight. The whole point that we asked them to evaluate us in our smart drinking program was we wanted to hear from them what it is we can do better, what was working, what wasn't working, and in an unfiltered way. And that's really kind of what I love about working with Georgetown is they just told it to us straight. Hey, you're good at this, but you're not so good at this, or you're bad at that. And that's what we wanted to hear. So Bill, what were they good at and where did they need work from the start? It takes courage for a company to do what John just talked about. Many companies basically say, we're in the XYZ business. We hire a lot of people. We pay their salaries. We pay our taxes. That's good enough. What it's really about is building environmental and social goals into your core business. And if you can do that and you can find your sweet spot, then you've got it all, as you say, Aaron, doing well by doing good. And I think that's what this company represents. So it took courage for them to do that. We need companies at the table. We can't solve today's social and environmental problems with endless combat. We need everybody at the table. And one of the things that they did that was really smart was at the very beginning, they aligned themselves with the public health community. They brought in public health people. And this in itself is tough to do because a lot of public health people don't want to work with beer companies or any other kind of companies and vice versa. And when you look at a company with all these powerful brands, with all this strategy, with the ability to move fast, with the ability to commit resources, you've got the chance to really make something work. So aligning with those public health people was a first step that turned out to be really advantageous. Hey, Aaron, this is John. If I could just add one thing to that was Bill's point there about aligning with the public health community and getting their feedback was part of the driver of this. We, again, wanted to hear from our critics man, what are you doing? What's working? What's not working? What their take on it was. And we've had been fortunate enough to be able to converse with and get the feedback from a number of public health advocates. And I would say that that has caused us to reevaluate what it is we do and how we do it in a way that we could never provide for ourselves. We could never get that perspective. One of the guys we work with is uh, Professor Bill DeYoung. And Man, he is a thorn in my side. I mean, he is a gadfly. And I talked about telling it straight. Man, he might tell it a little too straight to me sometimes, but it's great. It's what I want to hear. And it's what the organization needs to hear. Because we know that regardless of what we do, we want to hear what do people think about? Like, is it working? What's happening out in the real world and not in our bubble of, hey, here's alcohol producers and this is what we talk about. We're going to slap ourselves in the back and say, good job. And it's the exact opposite. We want to hear where can we get better and what can we do in much more impact. 
I love that, actually. I am curious, in your words, anecdotally, the PG version, maybe, <laughs> of something that he might have said that was like a hard truth that then you took and turned into action. And I ask this with the backdrop of, I feel like AB InBev and your partnership with Bill and bringing all these folks to the party, to the table, I feel like you even went further to say that you are go- you're committing to ensuring that no alcohol or lower alcohol beer products represent at least 20% of your global beer volume by the end of 2025. Talk about courage. I'm sure that when you said that to the board, some folks quietly or maybe not so quietly might have hailed a little bit. And that's not a bad thing either because it creates conversation that needs to be had. But I ask this because that's a very courageous, very bold goal. And it's a business decision, not some marketing or advertising or PR campaign. That's a business decision. So just anecdotally, I'm kind of curious. I think people would be interested to hear when you bring your harshest critics, who we're all on the same side here, to the table, what are the things that they are saying to you that spawned you into action? You have to be prepared to act when you hear it, and what you hear makes sense. For us, just to step back, we put out these goals, and we said, ah, here are four areas that we're going to strive for, we're going to do better on, and then we're used in a business context of having our key performance index matrices, having our targets, having all these business concepts where they're measured very precisely. So if you go talk to someone in sales and they say, well, what are their targets this year? How are they going to be bonused on? Man, they know it down precisely to the math, right? That if I have a 5% increase, a 10% increase, this is what's going to happen. And they measure that consistently. We knew when we put out these targets and these smart drinking goals, we knew that we were in uncharted territory. So when we said something like, oh, we want a 10% reduction in, in the harmful use of alcohol by these programs that we're going to run, 10%, I mean, where'd you come up with 10%? We were trying to align ourselves in connection with the WHO and SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. But at that point, when it first came out, we were a little bit crystal ball gazing. We knew whether we exceeded it, whether we got it, whether we came up short, the real groundbreaking part here was we were going to measure it. And that had never really been done in any systematic way. And we weren't just going to measure it. We were going to have other people measure it. So they couldn't say, oh, you manipulated something, right? We're going to have other people measure it. And we were going to be transparent about it. So not only do we show the data, but anyone can go look at the data. So when we ran a program and it worked like we wanted it, great, people can see it. But when it failed, when it came up short, man, people can look at that as well. With the whole idea. So I I have two questions there because it's almost unfair in some ways because you might be the largest, but you're not the only alcohol company (laughs) operating globally. So how do you sequester what you're providing into the market versus your competitors and or peers? Number one, number two, what exactly are you measuring? When you say you reduce the harmful use of alcohol by 10%, is this like DUIs? Is this hospital admissions? Is it anything related to police reports where alcohol is involved and there's domestic abuse? Like, What are you measuring? How are you doing that? And who's doing that? So I love just based on your question, Aaron, that you're having the same reaction that 99.9% of everyone I talked to internally our company had, which is, what are you talking about? That's really hard. How are you going to measure that? We can't influence the entire industry. How do we do that? And what we did was we tried to break that apart. And we said, look, 
if we don't go and say we're going to try to reduce this across the board, then we're not going to really make the impact that we want to have. So what we needed to do was we started to first come up with what's the methodology? How do you do that? So we worked with the leading experts and we said, how would you measure this? And we talked about this idea of healthy years of living. And what does that mean? And what's the impact? And that's a concept in the public health world that is generally well accepted, but you know, the devil's in the details. So we worked with them and said, give us the best that we can measure this. And then of course we said, well, what's the baseline? So let's take a baseline and then let's do some activities and then see and measure it again and see if we've moved that needle even though our programs are just our programs, even though what we're doing is only part of the solution, we wanted to go in and measure it. So when you have the methodology right, and then you have a program. So for instance, let me just give you an example. We went in and we did pilots. So we picked six pilots around the world in different geographies. And we went into, one of them was in Zacatecas, Mexico. And in Zacatecas, we have a big brewery there. So we had excellent relationships with the local community. And we went in and we said, look, we're going to measure in connection with road safety. Now, drunk driving is a huge, huge part of when people are talking about road safety, a huge part of it, but it's not the only part. We knew from the get-go that we also needed to work with others who are experts in road safety on things like road design, on things like coordination between local governments about getting the data about where there's consistently accidents in this area or at this time of day and how do we impact that. So for us, man, we wanted to do everything we can with anti-drunk driving programs, with safe ride programs, but we also wanted to be much more inclusive of the community to deal with the problem head on. And this goes back to one of the things I'm very fond of saying internally at the business, which is when challenges and opportunities come into our company, it's not like someone in the mailroom has a label maker and they say, ah, this one goes to legal and they label it legal and there it goes, ah, this one goes to finance and they label it, this one finance, ah, this clearly goes to marketing. I wish the world were that simple, but it's not. So we need to have holistic solutions in our company and we applied the same thought to when we talk about societal problems like road safety that have so many different impacts, how can we work with folks who are really trying to address that and bring them together? And what we bring to that can be different. It can be our programs on anti-drunk driving. It could also be our ability to bring data together. It might be different data pools at local governments that don't talk to each other, but we have the expertise to go in and say, let us go have those data pools talk to each other. So the police department or the road safety department is also talking to the department that administers when they repair the roads, that also administers, man, what happens with flooding and weather? How can we do all of those to have a road safety program that increases road safety or even things like texting and driving? Let's address the problem as best we can. And one of the nice things was, was that was one of the more successful programs that we have, what we're doing in road safety. So when you have that holistic approach, it gives you a chance to move the needle, even though you're only part of the solution. Where should initiatives like this be led from in most corporations? I know that the answer is it depends. So John has a background, is a legal background. And obviously you're more than that, John. I'm not just saying you're a lawyer, you're more (laughs) than that. But Bill, you have this background in comms and now in academia as a professor in public service. And increasingly, and I'm sure you're seeing this bill as well, 
folks who have the global corporate comms roles in large multinationals are increasingly also responsible for ESG. I think that's good because I like to believe that we are the guardians of truth and authenticity and that we try to hold people accountable for the levels of integrity that their brand are supposed to put in the market, right? So I love that. I'm curious what you think. And I know it's a little bit different at AB InBev, but I'm just curious, not just at AB InBev, but in general, based on your long career trajectory, where should this live? Who should lead these initiatives? Obviously, the CEO and the board it needs to start there. But in terms of executing and leading, getting shit done, where does that land inside of a multinational? It's a terrific question, and it's a very hard question to answer. First of all, as you said, it has to start at the top. So if you look at executive management of this company, John and his colleagues, the new CEO, Michelle DeCaris, the old CEO, Carlos Brito, all these people said, we're going to do this. And they had a person, Kata Garcia, who oversaw it. She had responsibility, day-to-day responsibility. But that's not enough, Aaron. It has to permeate down throughout the organization. So think of all these brand managers, all these salespeople that John's been talking about. They have quarterly responsibilities. They're trying to move product. And at the same time, you have these public health people who are thinking in terms of years. Some of the measurements that John talked about, and there are others like sales to minors in that Zacatecas program. This thing is incredibly complex. So if an organization, if a company is going to take it on, it has to tackle its culture And it has to drive it down through the organization. I think I know the answer to this, but it doesn't happen in weeks. It takes years and decades, right? Well, it does. And that's not how companies think. Companies think in much shorter terms. John's thinking maybe annually. Everybody else maybe think, or the people below him may be thinking quarterly. The things we're talking about here, culture change, changing social norms, these are long-term goals. What was the internal catalyst, the extent that you can share this, at AB InBev that gave you both the permission as well as the courage to reach out to someone like Bill and Georgetown and all these other third parties as well as internal stakeholders to actually do this? Was it one thing? Was it a culmination of things? Was it an executive change? What was it that finally made you do this? It goes to a number of things. Part was the board of AB InBev. We are a little bit unique in the sense that We have a number of board members who are shareholders of big chunks of the company. So we have folks who have been in the beer business, not for five, 10 years, but who have been in the beer business for hundreds of years. If you go take a look at our Belgian family shareholders, I cannot imagine being in a more privileged space as a senior executive than working for a board that has that long-term view that wants to do what is best in the long term. And I never, never once ever questioned the support. And in fact, the impetus that I had from directions from the board to do this right, to make a difference. Because at the end of the day, these are folks who are, yes, they're very focused on what the quarter will be. Yes, they're very focused on what the year will be, but they're really focused on what the long-term success of the business is. Smart drinking, for me, is smart business because we know that if we don't get this right, it's going to be really, really bad for us in the long-term. And I always had that belief. I always had that support to say, do what is best in the long-term. And you might not want to hear what Bill and some of the other folks have to say, 
but that's exactly what we want to hear because it's going to help us have a long-term success of the business. And that support is something that you cannot make up. The support from the board to say, yeah, we want to hear. We want to go tell us what's good and what's bad because we want to be doing this not just for the next few years, but for the next hundreds of years because they've been doing it for hundreds of years. Many companies are figuring this out. So AB InBev may be farther along than many companies, but both John and the CEO use the same phrase when we had conversations with them, which is the idea of license to operate. They need to get this right. They need to do well by doing good because their long-term fortunes depend upon it. So this is a far-sighted idea, a far-sighted company, but other companies are figuring it out as well. You must be reading my mind. I think it's just like corporate comms kind of Jedi thing, Bill, because I was going to ask you a similar follow-on question. So what's interesting about companies like AB InBev, and I still applaud you. I mean, the other thing I forgot to mention, of course, is that you're spending north of a billion dollars on this initiative because it's not a billion. We know it's going to be more than that. And that is, talk about shareholder, right? So that's real money, number one. But AB InBev is somewhat unique in that you have a little bit of fungibility in your business. You're able to offer alternatives and you're not, say, a pesticide company, a chemical company. You're not a company that's an extraction company, mining, right? Whereas that is their core business. There's not much they can do to change that business. So, Bill, my question for you is, look, I just got pitched by a pesticide company about stuff that they're doing totally unrelated to their business. And I think it's great. They're doing it for like communities and single parents and different kind of teen centers. I'm like, that's awesome. So my response to them is, what are you doing to help reduce the impact of your product in the world and environmental and sustain crickets, right? So some like 23 year old account executive of some PR agency <laughs> to me, and she's probably like shit and just kind of not going to respond to me. And I had a client that was in the extraction business. I'm not going to say who they are, who had the most incredible CEO I've ever worked with. He led them through a major transformation where they were divesting assets that did not fit their new set of values, which are based solely on the UN sustainability goals, similar and inspired by Unilever and what they're doing. And eventually the board's like, you know what, we're going to choose profit over this ESG sustainability bullshit, and we're going to oust you. And that's exactly what they did. For those types of companies where their core business actually isn't necessarily the cleanest type of business, but that is their core business, what can they do and how do you convince them to have courage to take big steps to transform themselves? Someone's still got to extract stuff out of the ground, but there's still yeah. probably a better way of doing it and probably a better way of being a global corporate, a global citizen. There are very few sectors where you can't do well by doing good. We joke about this at Georgetown. We don't want to work with any hand grenade companies. But the truth is that what AB InBev is doing really, I think, is a model for other companies to follow including pesticide companies. I'm doing some work right now with a fossil fuel company. And basically, they see the writing on the wall. And they say to themselves, we have to transform. How are they going to do that? It's going to be an enormous undertaking. I mean, their whole business is based on exploring for oil, pumping oil, selling oil. And now they have to change. So as big a challenge as AB InBev has, it's relatively small in comparison to some of these other people. But I believe that if we can get everybody at the table, I don't care if it's pharmaceuticals, tobacco, fossil fuels, whatever it is, we can work through this. But it has to be genuine. It has to be authentic. So as you said, if they're going to make it up, if they're going to greenwash it, forget it. 
It's so interesting because I believe that you started this initiative or this case study back in 2015. So back in 2015, the cannabis industry was really quite young. It's still young, but think about the growth of the cannabis industry over the last six years. And I'm thinking to myself, well, as that grows, they have similar challenges, different, but similar. And of course, alcohol companies and beverage companies as well are getting into the cannabis business. It actually makes me feel very good. And I'm hopeful that they will take lessons from what you're working on as well, because there's probably some universal truths and some applications of your approach that can be applied to the burgeoning cannabis industry. This is something that can be replicated in lots of different industries. And I think it starts with the following basic premise. And this is something that we talk about at AB InBev, which is we don't live on Mars and then come to the Earth and sort of sell our beer and then go home to our family on Mars. Our families are on the same roads. Our kids ride bikes on the same roads where there is drunk driving. We have family members who are impacted by the harmful use of alcohol. We live here and these are societal problems and we are in a really privileged place to go address these issues. And I would say that because we have the brands that talk to consumers and can influence them and persuade them to do things differently. So we can use our brands to get the messaging home on smart drinking. And that is something that I think that really hammers you. You need to go to your core to make sure that your core is working on those issues. So we could go and spend a billion dollars on animal safety. That's a very worthy cause. But at the end of the day, what we do is we sell beer and beverages, and that's where we need to make our impact, where we are uniquely positioned in those conversations with consumers to change behaviors so the world can be a better place. Yeah. And I don't think people realize, I hadn't either until I really looked into this, that you think about COVID, that's killed so far, I don't know, four, four million people globally, maybe more, definitely will be more, unfortunately. And I believe alcohol contributes to about 3 million deaths a year globally. That's not a small number. That's not a small number. And I think that's what you're talking about, playing a part and helping to reduce that number. And I'm curious from both of you, but especially John, you, which of all of your initiatives, because you have multiple initiatives that are part of what you're calling global smart drinking goals, this program, which has been kind of the most impactful, visibly and measurably impactful, and why? We've tried to measure. I think that one of the areas that has been most eye-opening to us is things that we thought were standard part of the industry playbook and practice, right, may not have been as impactful as we thought, or they needed to be tweaked. So one of the areas about safe ride home programs and safe ride home programs work and they work well, but they also have unintended consequences. And some of those unintended consequences are for a small number of people, a safe rides home program is seen as a license to overindulge and a license to perhaps yeah. binge. That's not the purpose of why we're running a safe rides home program. We're running a safe rides can you, home can program. You, John, John, can you tell it to my wife, please? When she's like, "Oh, we've got a DD tonight." <laughs> yeah, like, that doesn't give you license to get shit <laughs> Yeah, right. So knowing that, how do we adjust those programs to reduce 
those unintended consequences. And that was an eye opener for us because we've been running safe ride home programs for decades. And right. what we've done now with these studies is to say, man, how do we change these so we mitigate those unintended consequences? But overall, I would say some of the most eye-opening areas that we have is the impact we can have with our brands. So the impact we can have where if we get the social norm marketing right, if we go in and tell people, you know what, if you take these basic actionable steps, which others around you are taking, it can really have an impact. So we did something with a brand we have in Columbia called Aguila. And we ran something called a Live Responsibly campaign. And really what it was, was we had the caps of the bottles and we gave them to other businesses. And we said, hey, we'll put you on the caps and underneath we'll give you like coupons. And it'll be like for a quick service restaurant can put their logo on there because we want people to eat before and while they drink. Because that is a smart drinking practice that everyone knows that if you consume food before and while you drink, it is reduces the impact of the alcohol. So... It's something that a very basic idea. And then we had, you know, water companies go in there and we said, man, put a water on the label, right? And then have a coupon for water on there because then people will hydrate in between beers. And something as basic as that, it gets out the social norm advertising. So people change behaviors. And when you change behaviors, then you have the potential to have an, a real impact. But what it also does is it allows folks to go in and take control of that. And they say, you know what? I'm going to change my behavior. And here are some simple ways to do that. And for us, it's what we can really hammer home. And most importantly, we know it's good for the brand. So we're not some elementary institution here. We're not a charitable institution. Brands that do this benefit. So folks who are consumers of Aguila like that program. It's good for the brand. It's good for their relationship with the brand. It says, ah, this is a brand that speaks my language. This is a brand that cares about what I care about. So the idea that somehow all our social norm advertising and all this type of advertising is an extra that we do. And this was really one of the big challenges that Bill and the team at Georgetown gave us was, man, you need to make this much more part of the DNA. This needs to be not about a program or a particular project. But this needs to be much more ingrained into everything you do with the brands. And that's eye-opening, right? And that's something that we're going to go take seriously and take forward about how we do that. Because one of the great examples that we have is that oftentimes when we look at our best advertising, the best advertising is those that have a great social norm messaging to it. And the reason that is, is the same team that's doing let's call it the non-social norm advertising, the regular advertising is also doing the social norm advertising. And that's really when the creativity comes. And that's when consumers really love it because it yeah. captures what the consumers care about. As long as the social norm advertising is not driven by ad people. But yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bill can appreciate this. Like I've been in too many meetings with some dude in a man, but it's like, I have an idea. And it's like the worst idea ever. And it's so inauthentic. That's why we need people like me and Bill around. Like, <laughs> so Bill, I just want to go back to John's point about kind of like the DNA, right? So I want to talk about demographics very quickly. Are you seeing different attitudes and acceptance of messaging and campaigns like this 
amongst Gen Z versus millennials versus me, like a Gen X. And I ask because I look at my own children who are now 20 and 17, and I have to say they are far more, at least they appear and act to appear to be far more responsible and educated and knowledgeable about the harms of overindulgence and alcohol than I was in the 70s and 80s, and maybe even today. And that gives me great hope. It's just a totally different generation. But I'm just wondering if you're seeing those that shifts across these demographics. I think there are definitely demographic shifts. But you know, Aaron, one of the things we have to realize is these countries are different. You'll see in one country youth attitudes that are quite different from another country's. In the U.S., I think youth are more socially conscious, but at the same time, you have all this binge drinking. So one of the things that I think is really important is AB InBev is a marketing powerhouse. They're a marketing company. They have all these brands in all these countries, all of them trying to basically understand the local market. But at the same time, something that John and I have talked about is something that could potentially spread across countries, and that's low alcohol beer. So if you can market low alcohol beer, which is, I think John said, is taking root in the U.S., they're gaining share here. If you can make that work in Colombia, in Mexico, in parts of Africa, you don't have to basically change all these behaviors. If you can do something like that, you can cut across markets and make a difference. What is low alcohol beer? Is that alcohol by volume that's what, under 2 or 3%? 3.5% is the number that okay. we use. I don't think there's right. a truly common sort of well-accepted definition. We use 3.5% because at the time these goals were being put together, the team got together and said, you know what, that is the number that made the most sense. But 3.5%, a typical beer is typically 5%. What's a glass of wine? 8%? 12 to 14. Oh, so it's way higher, plus a lot of sugar, I might add. Nothing against wine, of course, but just makes (laughs) me tired and sleepy. But It's good to know that there is a market for that in the U.S. as well, for low alcohol beer. And it sounds like that's something that AB InBev is obviously committed to by the end of 2025. How are you doing against these goals? How are you feeling? And what is the next seminal moment or report that you're going to be putting into the market against some of these goals? The key to the goals is that it has challenged us to do better and better. And we're further along on some than others. Things like the labeling initiative. We had a goal to have a label where no labels are required that have a guidance on there. And we decided, man, we worked with the university to say, what are the best pieces of actionable advice we can put on there? And you know, we took our time to make sure we got it right. So things like, man, alternate your alcohol drinks with non-alcohol drinks, plan for a safe ride home, don't drink and drive. Don't drink if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Man, we have icons. We have words on there. And that was something that we said, you know what? In every market where there isn't a government mandated, you have to put this language on, we're going to change all our brands and we're going to put those statements on there. We're going to put icons on there. So, you know, think of like a car with the line through it, no drunk driving, a pregnant woman sort of line through it, don't drink while you're pregnant. The sheer magnitude of something like that, when you think about the number of brands that we have, the number of what we call SKUs, the individual units that come out is mind boggling. But we're well along on that. And we hope to be at the 100% by the end of this year. We hope to have that fully done at this point. But then we have some goals where we have the 10% reduction of harmful use of alcohol. Man, in our pilots, we got 10% sometimes. We got a few of them, got to 10%, but not all. 
But we were really happy with that because we knew then that we could take those areas that had the impact and now expand them out across the globe. Because one of the things of the benefits of being a global company is we can take what works and we can quickly expand those out across the goal. The hardest one has been the 20% no alcohol and low alcohol. But we're very encouraged that what we're learning there about things like man, it really makes a difference which brands you use for that. So if you go in and put in the leading core lager in a country and have that have a non-alcohol variant and say, ah, look at this, that has a tremendous impact. Where if you just come in with some other new to the world non-alcohol brand, it doesn't have the same impact. So we're working with the learnings from that about how we can best go in and make sure that when we are talking about no alcohol and low alcohol? Do we have availability? Do we have the right learnings about which brands to have the best impact? So all of this has been something that things like the billion dollars for the social norms, man, we're well along on that as well. We have every expectation to meet that. But the ones that we're struggling with, the ones that are challenges for us, we're not in any way sort of disappointed by that, man. We are just taking those learnings and adjusting. And that's the one of the things for us that was most important, that we not stay static on this, but that we adjust and we say, man, where can we get the impact? And by the way, we're just going to follow the science. When the science says, this is a good program, let's do it, man, then we're going to do it. And Bill made the point, man, it depends on the country too, right? So we did something called screening brief interventions, which in the US, when you go to your doctor, typically they'll ask you something like, so do you drink alcohol? And how many drinks a week do you have? Or how many drinks a month do you have? And those series of questions, right, is what we call a screening brief intervention where the doctor just says, hey, depending on how you answer those questions, he may have intervention steps for you to say, here's some advice for you to take to reduce that level because the level that you're consuming is not one that the medical community says this is where you should be. Now, you go take that in a country where access to medical care, the doctor is like, look, I don't have time to give out those types of questions. I have a waiting room full of people. I have to treat the immediate problem with that. And that's very understandable. So what we did, we said, okay, let's do some studies and things like, well, what happens if a physician's assistant asks those questions? Hmm. What happens if a nurse asks those questions? Well, what happens if we have a chat bot that follows up from the doctor's office either before or after the medical appointment that asks those questions and then provides the advice. That's something that allows us to take a program and scale it up worldwide on a national healthcare level, let's say. So the question is, how are we doing? Man, we're making good progress. The 20% is one that we're not where we want to be, but the learnings we have from it are going to get us that impact that we want. I would just say in conclusion that this is a journey. This is a very complex subject. One of the things we advise the company to do is to broaden their partnerships, their alliances, the UN social development goals, working with WHO, all the things that they are doing, but they can expand. This is going to take a while, but I think what we see is a company on the march. It's super impressive, honestly. And I appreciate you also opening the aperture so folks can understand the cultural sensitivities as well by country and the need for comms. And to your point earlier, John, 
some people on the outside who have maybe never worked in this business before or in business might be like, oh, how hard is it to put a label on something? Well, actually hard. And it's complicated and it's very expensive. And there's so many things you have to consider. There's a lot of calculus that goes into that. And obviously the impact's huge. It doesn't just happen right away. Things that seem obvious or like no big deal decisions are actually huge decisions. They have huge meaning and impact. So I appreciate you surfacing that in particular, you know, as an example as well as the doctor's office visit. It's, you know, listen, if mental health increasingly has less stigma and when you go for a regular checkup with your, you know, your internist and he or she or they are asking you questions about your mental health, there's no reason why they can't also ask you about your alcohol consumption. There's no reason why not. There's no reason why we shouldn't just be open. And I do love the fact that you're leaning into this new level of transparency and social norms. I really applaud you guys. And I thank you for coming onto the show and being so generous with your time. I know we went a little bit longer than usual, but I think this is a really important template for others to follow. And like you said, Bill, almost every other industry, there might be a few that is almost impossible or very, very challenging to do what you guys are doing, but there are more that can than that, that can't. And I think that's a very important point. So thank you. A pleasure thank to be you. here. Thanks, Aaron. Take care. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quipkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. 